0: Well, if you would please turn in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 11, verse 55, and we'll be into chapter 12 this morning. We're back here in our study in John. In another couple weeks, we'll begin the Upper Room discourse, but this is kind of a transition section, as we'll see. And uh, what we'll see, I I think, will 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 be amazing here this morning. God's word is beautiful, is it not? <laughs> Friends, if you uh, need a copy of Scripture, please raise your hand, our ushers will bring you one, and, and please receive that as a gift from us to you. We'd love for you to take that home and begin to read it. Well, well, back in 2009, I was a worship director in a church that often hosted Christian concerts, and one of the first concerts that I was a part of hosting there was, was with a, a group of people uh, named Mark Schultz. Mark is a solo artist, and another group, a women's group, a pop group called Point of Grace. Anybody ever heard of those groups? Okay, so all of you over 40, you got it. Uh, maybe, maybe there's a couple under 40, praise God. Uh, but they were pretty popular about 20 years ago, and it does make me feel old. Um, but, but anyways, I was backstage, and I was excited uh, to hang out with these artists. I didn't get to hang out a lot with them, but I got to meet them. And one of my roles for this concert was to MC as the worship director. Now, I was a musician at that point, and, and so I didn't do a lot of public sing- uh, speaking. Uh, singing was more my sweet spot. And so, though I was happy and excited to be the MC it was a little bit out of my comfort zone. I was a little bit nervous for it. And that's why when we had finished the sound checks and and we were downstairs in our sort of green room area chatting backstage, and and I was talking with one of the women from Point of Grace, I was surprised when she paid me a compliment. (laughs) And and I'll never forget what she said. She said, hey, uh, you've got a great voice. And and I I, I thought, really? (laughs) Me? I mean... You, you've heard me sing? Cool. You know, I, I hear this popular Christian artist who's tremendously successful, has an amazing voice in her own right. She somehow knew that I was a singer. She somehow knew uh, that, that, that I could sing, and she went out of her way to listen to my voice and, and to comment on it that night, even on a night when I wasn't singing. I had no idea how this works, but, but then on top of that, she paid me a compliment for my singing voice, and I was confused but I was also excited. And see, I don't know if you've ever had an, have ever had an experience like this, but, but these thoughts started to flood my mind. And in not, not more than just an instant, I was immediately thinking, sweet, someone famous finally noticed me. Maybe this is my ticket. You know, Maybe I'll get a record deal. Maybe I can start touring. Maybe I'll finally make the kind of impact that I want to make in the kingdom. I mean, maybe this singer for Point of Grace is the start of my path to something great. Nonetheless, I couldn't figure out how she could have possibly heard me sing. And so, you know, there was, a, there was a lot going on in my mind in that brief moment. My heart rate went up. My eyes sort of widened. And, and I knew that what I said next was going to be critical in this process. It was one of those moments like Ralphie in the Christmas story. Remember Ralphie? He, he was always scheming to get that Red Ryder BB gun. And he knew that what he said to his mom and his teacher and his dad was really important. I had one of those moments. This might be my ticket to something amazing or, or maybe not. And so here's what I said. I said, well, thank you. That, that's really kind of you, but, but how'd you hear me sing? And I'll never forget the puzzled expression on her face, followed by uh, what I'm positive were slightly rolled eyes, as she replied to me in what I remember as a southern accent. And it just works better as a southern accent. I don't remember if she has one or not, but this is the way I, I hear it in my head. Oh, honey, I didn't mean your singing voice. I just heard you speaking upstairs, that's all. <laughs> Awkward, right? <laughs> a record deal, uh, nope, uh, that's gone, <laughs> national platform, non-starter, <laughs> immediate high accompanied by immediate low in the twinkling of an eye, all right. <laughs> Anyone else ever encountered a celebrity and had a similar moment? <laughs> and maybe it was with a celebrity, but maybe it was with, with somebody that you knew had the opportunity to advance your station and you sort of got starry-eyed. Maybe it was a prospective employer in an interview. Maybe it was... Um, a potential endorser as you ran for office be it in your school or in city government or whatever maybe it was a teacher from whom you wanted a letter of recommendation or maybe it was a coach you would hope you were hoping would put you on the team maybe like me it was a famous musician you hoped would be your ticket to a record deal <laughs> whatever it is in a situation like that isn't it easy to view those who are further along than us maybe more advanced in their station as simply a means to an end <laughs> We think if I can just meet the right person, if I can just get into the right situation, then I can be noticed by somebody famous or someone with more power or wealth or whatever it is, and then maybe I can finally be somebody. Maybe I can get where I wanna go. And I, and I get it at one level. I mean, it's not all bad. We, we wanna do a good job in an interview. We wanna speak well and represent ourselves well. If we're, if we're running for office, we actually do need endorsements. And if we want a record deal, somebody actually does need to hear us sing. <laughs> But here's the thing. See, sometimes I'm convinced we take this approach with Jesus. We we take this approach with Jesus. We know that Jesus is a miracle worker. He is. We've we've seen that in our study in John. We know that Jesus has access to the Father. That's very clear to us as we read the Gospels. And sometimes, even without really thinking about it, we do the same thing with Jesus that I did with that singer from Point of Grace. We view Jesus as a means to an end. and And we have to ask ourselves... Is that okay? Is that how Jesus wants us to understand him? Is is it the right way to think about our relationship with him? And as we prepare to transition into the last week of Jesus' life in the Gospel of John, we find Jesus at the peak of his popularity. He's a big deal. Word has traveled. He's the one who was in Bethany when Lazarus was resurrected. In fact, he was the one who spoke and Lazarus got up out of the grave. He was the one who who raised this man who was dead for four days, already decaying, and is now walking around the streets of Bethany, fully alive, fully breathing, saying hi to his neighbors. Jesus is the one who did that. And with all these witnesses to confirm, there's no denying it, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And that made him the most sought-after figure in all of Jerusalem, hands down. And the people are fired up at this time. I mean, someone finally, with some power and with some authority, has noticed them, has noticed their plight, and here he is. He's entering into this area of Jerusalem, and they're finally going to be delivered from the Romans. They're finally going to be set free by their Messiah, and finally, they're going to get their record deal. (laughs) But friends... Perhaps like me with the singer from Point of Grace, what the people hoped for was not what Jesus intended to give. But unlike the singer from Point of Grace, what Jesus intended to give was so much greater. So much greater. And that's what I'm convinced we're going to see in the text this morning as we dive in. And so let's do that. Let's watch this play out starting in John chapter 11 verses 55 to 57. It says this. Notice the setting here. This is the time of the Passover. John opens up by telling us that the Passover is at hand. And this marks the third time in the Gospels where there's a reference to the Passover, a third Passover. There's clear that there are three different Passovers represented in the Gospels. And this means that Jesus' public ministry has been going on for over two years now at this point. And as John often does, he organizes the narrative around a feast, okay? Okay. He's already twice referenced the Passover in his gospel, and then there was this unnamed feast, uh, probably Pentecost in John 5, and and then we talked a lot about the feast of booths, not booze, in John chapter 7, and then in John chapter 10, uh, we we understood uh, about the feast of dedication or the feast of Hanukkah. And so now, here we come to this last feast prior to Jesus' death, and it's the Passover. It's the Passover, and of course, the Passover is the feast where the Jewish people celebrated their deliverance from Egypt, their their exodus from Egypt. Particularly, they they celebrated that moment when the angel of death was enacting the 10th plague to, to, to execute all of the firstborn of the land in Egypt, and he passed over the Israelite people as they sacrificed a pure lamb and put blood on the thresholds of their doors. This was a significant feast for the Hebrew people. They were passed over by that angel of death. And so as you might expect, based on John's previous thematic connections to the feast, the connection here to Passover is, is no different. There's a, there's a tight connection here. And see, Caiaphas, the, the high priest, had already said in John chapter 11, verse 50, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And so as Jesus' popularity continues to, to, to soar, so too does his movement toward the cross. And so, too, does the intensity of the chief priests and the Pharisees and their opposition of Jesus. And see, in fact, there will be soon another pure and spotless lamb sacrificed for the protection of the people, for the deliverance of the people. <laughs> now, as we've often seen, there are many and varied responses to Jesus in the Gospels. But now that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, things are amped up just a little bit. They're they're amped up. The, The responses are becoming broader and more intense. And in fact, I want to suggest that there are two primary responses to Jesus in what we're going to read today that highlight Jesus' ministry purpose. One of them, a positive example, a positive response. And the other one, as we'll see, a more negative response than we might expect. Specifically, there are two responses to the seventh sign, okay? And and, and we need to read this in context with what we read last or two weeks ago in the resurrection of Lazarus. This is a response to Jesus and his performance of the seventh sign, the resurrection of Lazarus, to this culminating miracle of Jesus' public ministry. And so for the first response, let's dive in here. John chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Now, you gotta remember Bethany was the place where this resurrection event happened. Bethany was where Lazarus lived with his sisters Mary and Martha. And here Lazarus is is walking around in the streets, and everybody knows him, and this is a big deal. And so the people of Bethany, uh, perhaps it's Simon the leper, we, we know from the other gospel accounts, invite Jesus and invite Mary and Martha and Lazarus to a table as their guests of honor in order to celebrate what Jesus has done. And so here we find Martha in her typical role as she's serving away. And it's awesome. In Luke 10, we see that Martha is serving. That's who she is. That's what she does. She's serving, and, and, and no doubt people are blessed. And then we find Lazarus. And remember, Lazarus is this trophy of grace and glory and power. I mean, uh, he, he's the one that Jesus raised from the dead, and he's there reclining at the table. <laughs> And I sort of envision the people looking at Lazarus and sort of gawking, you know, like, I just can't believe it. I can't believe that Lazarus is alive. And, and I sort of envision them asking uh, these really awkward questions like, hey, man, what's it like to be dead? <laughs> or or what, what, when did you first hear Jesus calling you out of the grave? Did you hear his first words or did you take a few? I mean, give us the details, Lazarus. Or, or did you know what was happening right away when you got up out of the grave and, and you had toilet paper hanging off of you? Or did it take you a minute? Okay. And just as the conversation about reaches its peak, just when the buzz couldn't get any louder, Mary slips away from the table and she goes to the back and she comes back with this little jar of something and everything stops. Everything stops. And we read in verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Can you smell it? Can you imagine? I mean, talk about a showstopper. This is a big deal. Mary's anointing of Jesus is incredibly significant for several several reasons here. First, she's using a rare plant, a rare extract. It's likely a plant from from the country that, that Bill referenced earlier, from India. And it's called the nard plant. And as an import, it was incredibly expensive. In fact, verse 5, as we'll read, indicates that it was worth up to 300 denarii. That means 300 days' wages. And when you you factor in all the Sabbaths and all the religious holidays, that's a whole year's salary in this little jar. (laughs) And here, Mary brings it, and she cracks it open, and she literally pours tens of thousands of dollars over Jesus' head, I'm convinced over his beard, over his body, and all the way down to his feet. She dumps it out all over him. And if that weren't audacious enough, not more than a few seconds after this this, this pungent aroma pings the nostrils of everybody in the house, Mary unbinds her hair and she uses it to begin wiping Jesus' feet. This is remarkable at all kinds of levels. First, it's, it's extravagant, church. It's absolutely extravagant. I mean, the value of that ointment was irrecoverable. There was no going back once you dumped it out on somebody. And so to some, it was a tremendous waste. In fact, we read in in verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And some of us are thinking, you know, that's a good point. (laughs) Why not? I mean, why does Jesus benefit from walking around smelling like the perfume counter at Kohl's or at TJ Maxx, right? And church, this highlights an important conversation. Something we need to wrestle with as as a church. See, the, the scriptures clearly reveal God's heart for the poor. There's no doubt that God has a heart for the sojourner, for the stranger, for the downtrodden. And Judas makes a strong argument based on that reality. I mean, how much should we really spend on things like worship? or discipleship, or evangelism, when, when there are people all over the world who are going hungry. I mean, shouldn't our resources go there first? And it's true, friends. Sometimes those of us who, who emphasize a personal relationship with Jesus, those of us who have a high view of the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, We can sometimes rightly be accused of of caring or emphasizing so much a person's spiritual need that we neglect their physical needs. I think that's a fair accusation in in many contexts. And yet D.A. Carson brings up a great point when he says this. He says, if self-righteous piety sometimes snuffs out genuine compassion, it must also be admitted with shame that social activism Even that which meets real needs sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship and adoration. There's a tension there, isn't there? And, friends, here's the principle from this text genuine worship is never a waste. Genuine worship is never a waste. Yes, our world has great social need. We ought to care about that. And yes, the church and its members ought to work to meet the needs of all of those who are made in God's image. And yet, we must also not neglect to follow Mary's example, to learn to sit at Jesus' feet, to learn from him as she does in, in Luke 10, to pour out our extravagant worship and adoration and love in church. Here's the reality. See the most extravagant worship we can offer Jesus pales in comparison to the extravagant gift that he's offered us. We cannot outgive God. He's worthy of all that we have, all that we are, all that we know. And so yes, Mary's gift was extravagant. So was Jesus' gift to us. Now, it wasn't just extravagant in church. It was also very humble. It was very humble for a Jewish woman to let down her hair in public like she did. That that was seen as a mark of having loose morality. She took a great risk in in taking the, the whatever you ladies have in your hair to let them down, okay? She took a great risk in doing that. But then not only to let her hair down, but to bend down next to Jesus. Jesus would have been reclining at the table. His his head and his hands would have been this way. He'd have been laying down. That's what they did in the Middle East at that time. They still do in some places. And his feet would have been behind him. And she would have come around and she would have bent over with her hair. And we assume it was of normal length. I don't know exactly, but she'd have had to get close. And she'd have bent down. And she would have taken her hair and she would have wiped Jesus' feet with it. Her face, her nose, close to those, those smelly appendages that were a part of every Middle Eastern sojourner. And friends, here's the thing. The Jews wouldn't even let their slaves touch their feet. It was so demeaning. It was seen as such a despicable thing to do. And yet Mary couldn't help herself because she'd seen enough. She knew enough. This Jesus had healed her brother, had called him up out of death and into life. This Jesus she'd been listening to for a long time now, and she understood this is the Son of God. And so the only thing she could think to do that was appropriate, as she maybe sensed that his end was near, is to come to him and to break this jar and extravagantly pour out her worship over him, and then with great humility get down on her knees and on her hands and wipe his feet with her hair, to do the most despicable, audacious thing she could do in order to elevate him, in order to recognize her place. Reminds me of John the Baptist who said, this man's thongs I'm not even worthy to untie. She literally cast herself at Jesus' feet. She threw off all sense of personal dignity and she worshipped. And friends, I wonder how often do we come to Jesus and we're trying to hold on to our own personal dignity, to our own personal pride. We're trying to come to Him and impress Him, trying to come to Him to say the right thing so that He'll give us what we want. How often do we come to Jesus trying to, to butter Him up like Ralphie in the Christmas story in order to get that Red Rider BB gun? Rather than doing the only appropriate thing when you're standing next to the God of the universe bow, and to worship. Friends, Mary's response to Jesus was both extravagant and humble. What's mine? What's yours? Now, Just as the people begin to murmur, perhaps some of them are thinking, yeah, Judas has got a point. What's going on here? Just as things start to amp up, John adds commentary. Verse 6. John says about Judas, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas didn't care about the poor, he didn't care in the least. He cared about filling his own money bag, his own pockets. We're going to come back to Judas a little bit later this morning. But first, notice how Jesus comes to Mary's defense. Boy, if Jesus is defending you, (laughs) I think you're going to be okay. Look at this. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Church, remember the setting is the Passover. And Jesus' words reflect his knowledge. He knew what he was doing in Jerusalem. He knew that this was going to be the last time that he made this ascent. He knew that he was about to become the sacrificial lamb. And so as he defends Mary from from the impetuosity of Judas, he also adds insight into what she's done. See, as I mentioned, this kind of ointment was typically only used for burial. It was used for burial. And in that, Mary's act becomes a prophetic act. It points to the coming reality of Christ's death. And and he understands, why not offer this extravagant act while he's still alive to receive it? And you know, I I wonder, it'd be only about six days later that Jesus would, would hang on the cross. And I wonder, in a society where people didn't take a shower every day, I wonder if some of that fragrance still lingered with Jesus. I wonder if some of it was in his beard. I wonder if it was still uh, lingering on his body, maybe on his feet especially. And I wonder if part of the joy that was set before him as he endured the cross, Hebrews 12, I wonder if part of that joy was him smelling that fragrance (laughs) and thinking about Mary and thinking about Martha and thinking about Lazarus. And saying, that's why I'm here. Boy, I love those people. Boy, I love those people. And I can still smell it. And I can still see those faces. And I'm here, I'm suffering the most gruesome, horrendous death. I'm suffering separation from God because of them and everybody else. One can only speculate. (laughs) But certainly the ointment pointed prophetically to what was yet to come. Now, as the crowd grew, so did the suspense. Look at this. Verses 9 through 11. It says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Jesus. Church, the Jewish leaders are increasingly threatened as the Passover pilgrims continue the buzz. Where's this Lazarus who is raised by Jesus from the dead? Where's this Jesus who can command people to come out of the grave? We want to see him. We want to know him. We want something of that. And so the Pharisees, the chief priests, the rulers, they do what they know to do. They they add Lazarus' name to the execution list. It's horrendous. Keep reading. Then the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, this is verse 12, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, but, but of course, this is the famous triumphal entry, isn't it? Those of us who traveled in Israel earlier this year, back in March, we walked down this road where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. It was incredible. It's beautiful. But I want us to consider the triumphal entry in a way that we don't often. See, we don't often consider it in the same context as Mary's anointing. But I'm convinced that John pairs these things for a reason. And see, Mary responds to Jesus by anointing him with extravagance and with humility and in prophetic recognition of his coming sacrifice. But the crowds respond differently. See, theirs is not an anointing of Jesus. Theirs is an appointing of Jesus. They're not anointing Jesus, they're appointing him. See, they, for, for, for them, Jesus is a means to an end, and it becomes increasingly clear if they can but appoint Jesus to office, then they too can get their share of that resurrection power. And so notice, see where Mary's anointing was extravagant, the crowd's anointing is quite inexpensive. There were palm branches everywhere in Israel during that time. It was no big thing to walk over to to a plant and to pull off a palm branch, a tree, maybe to find them laying on the ground if they were readily accessible. And so where Mary's anointing was extravagant, their appointing was quite inexpensive. And then where, where Mary's act demonstrates great humility, the palm branches conjure up a sense of nationalistic pride. Of nationalistic pride. See, by this time, uh, these palm branches had become a symbol for the rebellion of the Jews against their Roman oppressors. uh, A symbol of the Maccabees. These people that that were zealots, that pushed back against Roman governance. And so, much like we might wave a flag on July 4th, the Jews waved palm branches. And then on top of that, the people reference a very important psalm for national Israel when they they cry out in, in verse 13, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And see, in verse 13, this is a direct quote from Psalm 118. And this was a big deal for the people of Israel. They would recite this psalm. They would pray this psalm in anticipation of the coming Messiah. And and, and the word Hosanna from Psalm 118 is, is directly from verse 25, and it's translated, save us. And so they would often cry out loud in shorthand, Hosanna, they meant save us. They meant, hey, you're the Messiah. We're ascribing that role to you. We're appointing you to that role. We're seeing that you have these properties. We want you to come and do what we need you to do. And so as Richard Phillips points out, as Britons hail their monarch with God save the king and Americans greet their president with hail to the chief, the Jews welcomed Jesus with Hosanna from Psalm 118. Now, there's nothing wrong with waving a flag, is there? (laughs) Praise God. There's nothing innately sinister about waving a palm branch for the Hebrew people. They had been oppressed by Rome. And they had a reason to hope that God would deliver them. And yet the contrast is obvious. See, Mary's humble devotion stands against the nationalistic pride and fervor of the Jewish people. See, they were longing for the glory of their nation. Mary was responding to the glory of her Savior. And then on top of that, though, Mary's response to Jesus was prophetic, pointing to our real need for forgiveness and to this culminating work of Jesus in the incarnation, His death and resurrection. The Jewish people had trouble looking past their own immediate situation. They couldn't fathom that the Messiah came to do more than what they expected, them, expected him to do. See, their view of their own poverty was too narrow. They viewed it as a, a, some product of Roman oppression, and they wanted a deliverer. <laughs> they wanted a Messiah to set them free from Rome, but, but their understanding of his role was what I'm going to call myopic. And I know that's a, a word we don't use very much, but I just like it, and so I chose to use it. Myopic, it means narrow in scope, okay? It means limited And sure, God would and could deliver the people of Israel from their political oppression. That's happening. Jesus is coming back. It's all going to get solved. But friends, he came to do so much more. And so when Jesus chose a lowly donkey, instead of a majestic steed as one would have expected of a king, he demonstrated that what they were expecting wasn't the same as what he was intending. Their response to him was myopic. Myopic. It was all about what they perceived as need. But Jesus came to solve what they and we actually need. (laughs) And so we have to ask ourselves, how do we respond to Jesus? What's our response? I mean, we've read the eyewitness accounts of his miraculous signs. We've seen seven of them in John. There are a whole bunch more in the Gospels. And there were even a whole bunch more that weren't recorded. We've heard his teaching. We've listened to his arguments. We know who he is. He's the son of God. The question is, will we anoint him accordingly like Mary? Or will we appoint him to do what we want like the crowds? Will we anoint him with extravagant worship and humility and in prophetic recognition of his purpose to save us from our sin? Or will we appoint him in a way that costs us little and benefits us greatly? at least in the near term, in a myopic sense? In a way that seeks to make Him our nation's trump card, that, that listens to what He can do for us, for me, right now. Will we anoint? Or will we appoint? And friends, I recognize this can be a struggle. And in fact, it was for those here in this text. There are three struggles that I want to I highlight for us. And perhaps you'll identify with one of them at least. First, first, I hope you don't identify with this one, but you might. And if if you do, I'm glad you're here. I really am. Friends, there's a struggle for the chief priests and the Pharisees. We've already read in verses 9 through 11, their plan was to kill Lazarus along with Jesus. And then in verse 19, we, we read this ironic statement. Verse 19 says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. We're not getting anywhere here. This is not going well. Look, the world has gone after him. They're beside themselves. And see, for them, the world meant everybody in Jerusalem, everybody in their world. But ironically, Jesus came to save the whole world. (laughs) Jesus came to save those people in Muslim countries that have never heard the true gospel. Jesus came to save those people in the Far East Eastern countries that are, are worshiping a totally different, in a totally different framework. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, that's Jesus' mission. He did come to save the world. The Pharisees, ironically, got it right. In church, the struggle for the chief priests and the Jewish leaders was to suppress Jesus. They were doing everything they could to get rid of Him. And and I can't help but draw contemporary correlations. There, There are those who are threatened by Jesus. And they prefer that he not even enter the narrative. Or they prefer to rewrite what he said. We talked about chat GPT and the ability to make up your own verses these days. Thus they demean Jesus and his word. They claim his irrelevancy. Some even deny him altogether. Others simply rationalize his teaching. You know what? He was a good man. He was a good teacher, but he wasn't the son of God. That's that's one struggle, friends, to suppress Jesus. Another struggle is represented by Judas and the crowds. See, Judas saw Jesus as a means to an end. I I envision Judas as kind of this measly fellow, maybe a little bit socially awkward, and he's got an agenda all the time, and and really he has trouble making friends, and nobody's following him, but, but amazingly, Jesus says, Judas, I want you in my band. And so he comes in, and he's one of these 12. And I, and I sort of picture Judas hanging back and waiting for his opportunity as G- Jesus' popularity grows. But with increasing frustration, Judas is thinking to himself, why doesn't Jesus take advantage? Why doesn't he sign the record deal? There's a lot of money in this thing. And he gets frustrated. And then he starts, starts just pilfering a little bit here and there, thinking, you know what, i got to get my share. This is ridiculous. It's not what I signed up for. And as the nature of Jesus' ministry continues to conflict with his own expectations, he turns the corner from following to exploiting. He pretends to care for the poor, all the while intending to personally benefit. It's a dangerous proposition, don't you think? And the struggle for the crowds is is similar. If they can appoint Jesus to office, then they can get what they want. They can exploit him for their own selfish desires. In church, we must not follow suit. (laughs) Richard Phillips says, this is a perennial problem in the world. A desire to receive the blessings that Christ might offer without first embracing the true purpose of his saving grace. And so we have to ask ourselves, are, are we seeking God's blessing and not God's salvation through Christ? You can't have one without the other. And then finally, church, for some the struggle is to suppress Jesus, for others it's to exploit him, but still for others, and maybe you find yourself in this category this morning, it's not to express or suppress or to exploit, but it's a struggle to understand Jesus. Look again at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Sometimes it takes us a minute. It took them well over two years of Jesus' public ministry. Sometimes it takes a minute. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. Church, the disciples had access to everything they needed to know the truth about Jesus, and yet they struggled to understand. But when they finally saw Jesus in His resurrection glory, it all all came together. And what had once been foggy now became clear. And I wonder, maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling to understand Jesus. You're trying to figure him out. You're trying to discern, can I really trust my life with him? Can I really give myself over to him? Would I really be willing to break a bottle of perfume that costs a year's wages in order to demonstrate my love for him? And if you're in that place, I'm so glad that you're here. You have permission to be in process here. It's okay. I don't want you to stay there. Because the disciples didn't. And friends, you have access to what the disciples needed. You have Jesus on the other side of glory. 500 witnesses and more recognize that Jesus, like Lazarus, got up out of the grave. Friends, Jesus is worth following. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. We read these prophetic words in Zechariah 9 9 through 10. In anticipation of the coming Messiah, the coming King, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He humbled and mounted on a donkey. Not on a great steed, not on a majestic war horse, on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. (laughs) Friends, Jesus has already revealed his glory to us. Praise God. And we have the privilege of seeing in retrospect what the disciples struggled to see in real time. That Jesus is the servant king. He's the servant king. He's the one riding on a donkey, not a war horse. He's the one coming to save his people from their sin. He's the one who received that beautiful, extravagant, and humble gift from Mary and allowed her to wash his feet. And then, rather than, than getting all high and mighty, saying, Well, that's what people should do for me. What'd he do? We're going to see it. He turns around and he washes his own disciples' feet. Friends, he's our servant king, he's humble. And he's riding on a donkey and he's entering in not to not to this glorious kingship that will overthrow the Romans. He's entering into this, this glorious sacrifice that will cost him his very life. Will cost him his blood. Will you join Mary in anointing him for that? Or will you stay with the crowds and appoint him to what you want? Will you believe Jesus today? Church, don't, don't be like me. When I met that singer from Point of Grace, I, I wanted her to affirm, to, to give me what I wanted. Perhaps her, her words were more prophetic than I realized. I don't sing that much these days. I speak a lot more. And for me, that's, that's better. You know, if you try to appoint Jesus to what you want, You'll be disappointed, to be sure. But if you anoint him in submission to what he wants, you won't believe what he has for you. Friends, let's anoint our Savior Jesus today. He is our servant king. Come to save us from our sins. He's the one, the only pure and spotless lamb, sufficient to make that sacrifice. Let's worship him today.